Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Talking about the plight of boys and men is a little strange. We live in a world that was built by and for men. That's not even controversial to say. It's just historical reality. In fact, in order to make the progress that we have made over the past century or so, we've had to try and stop thinking about only boys and men and start thinking about how society can include non-men in its voter base, labor force, military, schools, universities, and more. And society today isn't exactly a perfectly level playing field. Still, it's unquestionably a better and more equitable world today than it was in the past. And yet, when you look closely at our society and other industrialized nations, What you find is that boys and men, especially working-class men, are falling behind. They're not only worse off than they were in the past, they're doing much worse than girls and women by a number of different measures, from education to income to suicides. Men are really struggling. Even if some of this might be due to the consequences of finally building a more equitable society, The plight of boys and men right now is something that should worry all of us. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and his new book is called Of Boys and Men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. One of the things I appreciated most about this book is that it makes the case that finding a way to help men will benefit all of us. We have a tendency to view things as zero-sum, as though recognizing that boys and men are struggling would mean turning our backs on women. But the fact is, men are struggling. Case in point. Reeves cites a stat that most men are earning lower wages now than they were in 1979. I found that pretty startling. How can that be true? You've done lots of conversations about economic inequality, I know, but if you just look at the median, it's about a 30% rise for women and a few percentage points drop for men. And in fact, one of the reasons the gender pay gap has narrowed at the median isn't just that women have earned more, although that's the main reason, but partly because men are earning a little bit less at the median. And then, of course, slower growth, lower down, and much higher growth towards the top. So for women at the top, they're the 90th percentile. It's more than 50% wage growth over that period. So there's been this fanning out of earnings inequality. But women at every point of the female distribution have increased their position just by more at the top, whereas for men, only the men at the top have improved their position relative to men at the top in 79. In terms of education, at the K-12 through level, what do those gaps look like? How are they manifesting there? Are girls also outpacing the boys similarly? 
Yes. In fact, you can predict most of the gap in post-secondary education by what's happening in K-12. Those with highest high school GPAs, two-thirds of those are girls. Those with lowest high school GPAs, two-thirds of those are boys. So if you're selecting increasingly on GPA, which is a very good predictor, by the way, of college success, I'm not blaming the colleges, right? but that just reflects the gaps you see all the way through. So boys are about 12 percentage points less likely to be school ready at five. In the average school district in the US, so let's take the median school district in the US, girls are about three quarters of a grade level ahead in English and uh, a dead heat in math. In the poorer school districts, there are almost a grade level ahead in English, but more interestingly, it's almost a third of a grade level ahead in math. And so I guess I came into some of this saying, well, like, I know that girls are ahead in some things. Like Everyone knows that girls are typically outperforming boys in English, but boys typically better at math and maybe a bit better at science. And that's basically not true. You really struggle now to find any level of education, whether it's grade four or eight or 12, or any subject within education where you can see a gender gap in favor of boys. Well, what's interesting to me, I mean, there's some developmental differences here that we'll come back to. To the extent that this gap, particularly K through 12 and really K through five, to the extent that that gap is attributable to some of these developmental differences, right? Like girls mature much faster than boys. I think most people know that. Those developmental differences would have always existed, right? So what is new or different today that is exasperating those differences? The short answer is the success of the women's movement in taking away the artificial ceilings that there were on girls' and women's educational outcomes. Mm. It's actually striking to me that girls were doing slightly better than boys in high school in the 1960s. So their advantage has grown, but in the 1960s, when very few of those girls were going to go on to college, and very few of them were getting the message that getting a good college degree, getting a good career was the path, and they were still doing slightly better in high school. But since then, by taking the brakes off girls' and women's educational opportunities and aspirations, the result of that has been to expose the fact that structurally, the education system is somewhat more female-friendly than male-friendly. That's a weird thing to say, but we couldn't see that when we were artificially capping how far women and girls are supposed to go, both culturally and very often institutionally, sometimes even legally. We weren't seeing where far they could go. And by the way, that's why I think no one predicted this great overtaking. During the 1970s and 80s, when people were working correctly very hard to improve the educational outcomes for women and girls, nobody thought the lines would keep going. Nobody had reason to believe at that point that we would just see a new inequality emerge on the other side. And my interpretation of that is that there are very important ways in which the education system is female-friendly, more than male-friendly, but we couldn't see that when we weren't allowing the females to show their advantage. So to put it another way, we've created something much closer to a level playing field in education now, and it's exposed the fact that the girls and women are better players. What makes the way we do school, at least in this country, What makes it favor girls over boys? What are the structural features of it that advantages them more so over boys? There are three main ways I see the education system being structured to favor girls and women 
on average? Can we just take for granted that everything we're saying here is going to be on average and maybe we can get into how far the distributions overlap later? But the three big ones are, number one, which you've already alluded to, is the difference in the developmental pathways of boys and girls on average. As you just said, girls mature earlier than boys. And then they mature earlier in skills that are very important in the education system. It's not cognitive skills. It's not these smarts. It's prefrontal cortex. It's soft skills. It's non-cognitive skills. Whatever language you want to use. I, I like to think of these skills as the turn your chemistry homework in skills. Yeah. They're the bits that you remember you've got chemistry homework. You take it home. You do it. You take it in. You hand it in. You remember that you're in a chemistry class. Something that at that basic level is sometimes where my sons struggled. And that just develops much earlier in girls than in boys. So they're developmentally at an advantage all the way through, but they're particularly at an advantage in adolescence. Number two, there is a growing share of female teachers in K-12, or to put it differently, a declining share of male teachers. So male teachers now only make up 24% of K-12 teachers, down from a third in the 80s, only one in 10 elementary school teachers. And so there is evidence that particularly in subjects where boys are typically weak, like English, having a male teacher really helps. And actually, I've discovered this since I wrote the book, that there are fewer and fewer men in teaching, but also the subject they are least likely to be teaching in middle and high school is English, mm. which is where the best evidence is that they're actually having a positive effect. And then the third is an insufficient regard to applied learning styles, more vocational learning, technical learning, apprenticeships for older boys and men. Again, on average, it looks like boys do a little bit better with more hands-on learning than kind of sit-in-the-desk book learning than girls. And so to the extent that we've pulled away over the last few decades from that kind of learning, that has disadvantaged boys disproportionately. Is there a significant employment gap that we're seeing now in the labor market with uh, men and women? Well, it's still true that men have higher rates of labor force participation than women. But male labor force participation has been coming down. Female labor force participation was going up quite strongly for a long time. This is not obviously a secret, but through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and into the this century before leveling out. So actually female labor force participation hasn't been doing so well recently either. But male labor force participation is down. And just even the recent job numbers show that particularly for younger and middle-aged men, that not bouncing back from the pandemic loss in the way that other groups are, including women. And so whilst it's true that men are still more likely on average to be in work, almost entirely because if women are out of the labor market, they're looking after children, their trends are very different. And that point about what they're doing when they're not in the labor market is very important. By and large, if women aren't in the labor market, it's because they're caring, usually for children. Whereas when men are not in the labor market, that's not true. And how did these differences start to break down when you account for race and class? Is there an important sub-story there? Yeah, in some ways, that's the big story. People have said to me, aren't you really talking about working class men and or black boys and men? Because it is important to note that most of the trends we're talking about here very much bear on those lower down the economic ladder and those of color, especially black boys and men. And so, as I mentioned earlier, wages have actually risen at the top for men as well as for women and many of the family trends that we see so we've seen a huge class gap open up in marriage for example there did, used to be no class gap in marriage now there's quite a big one with college educated americans continuing to marry at very high rates and stay married probably at slightly higher rates than their parents did where it's not true for those lower down the economic ladder so yes, there's a huge class story here. And I think that partly affects people's ability to see these problems because if they're only looking for them in their own class, 
then you're unlikely to see the same levels. I think there are some problems which are affecting men more generally, but it's clear that the deep problems and the place to really worry is for men in the bottom half or two thirds of the labor market. Men are also more likely to be lonely. They're more likely than women to have fewer friends. What the hell is that about? Because that seems particularly devastating, actually. I could see that being the foundation for lots of other problems that would bubble up in very, very destructive ways. Yeah, there's this really interesting work that Daniel Cox has been leading, showing that now 15% of young men don't have a close friend, and that young men actually are now more likely to turn to their parents for advice on a problem than a friend, which was absolutely not true 30 years ago. Yeah. Not true when I was a young man. I, I don't know what you would answer that, but if you were in your early 20s and you had a problem to talk about, you'd probably talk to a mate first, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. But that's really much less true. And then there's been a decline in friendship for both men and women, but much more strongly for men. I think there's a couple of things there. It's very difficult, of course, to tease out cause and effect here. But I think that there has been an assumption that women will do more of the relational work. Women do put more labor into relationship maintenance. And so if relationships break up, for example, the men tended to put more of their eggs in the basket of the romantic relationship. Maybe that's counter some of the stereotypes we have, which means, for example, that separation or divorce disproportionately hurts men's social networks. Suddenly they discover that all those friends they thought they had, they're actually her friends. <laughs> so that's one thing. I do think that there's some evidence for the displacement of in real life friendships by some of the online activities that young men in particular are engaged in. And there may also be a reduction in the kinds of institutional environments within which some of these friendships were formed, especially male-male friendships. And so you might think about well, where are the sites where these places are formed? Obviously, school remains an important one, but there may be fewer and fewer other places where boys and men can actually form those friendships. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at. I mean, is there something about our social and cultural infrastructure that makes it needlessly difficult or harder for boys and men to find friends and make friendships and, and sort of socialize in healthy ways? I worry about that. I think that we're still in the early stages of understanding this so-called friendship recession. I worry in particular about creating environments where those male-male friendships can be formed. So I think you have to distinguish here and say, what kinds of friendships are we talking about? And, and there's growing evidence that for men to have other male friends is important for them on all kinds of variables. There's all this research showing that loneliness can be devastating for your health. But I think if we're talking about male-male friendships, so the decline in sort of extracurricular activities in schools, for example, in sports, and actually to connect back to the conversation about male teachers, one of the interesting things about male teachers is they're much more likely to be coaches after school. Yeah. But actually, so the fewer and fewer male teachers means fewer and fewer male coaches. And the role of coach is obviously quite important. <laughs> it's important in American culture generally, right? You only have to say that word and it conjures up all kinds of feelings for lots of people like coach. Sometimes as a, just a stand-in for fathers or just an add-on to fathers. How much of this is American-centric? I mean, are the numbers elsewhere pretty comparable to this? Are we seeing the same trends? In advanced economies, yeah. So if you look at OECD countries, every one of them now has more young women with a college degree than young men. Mm. That overtaking has taken place everywhere. And the more advanced the economy and the more gender equal the economy, the bigger the gaps are. So the biggest gaps in education are in Scandinavia where, of course, there's been huge advances towards gender equality. So the education trends are absolutely very similar. The economic ones are similar in their direction, 
But American men in the labor market seem to have fared particularly badly, I think, because we don't have very good active labor market policies. I think the weakness of the U.S. welfare system has actually put men in much greater peril from the similar economic forces around free trade and globalization, automation, etc., have affected the labor markets of other Western economies, but it's hit American men further. So that figure about being worse off, that's not true everywhere else. They're not very much better off, but they're not worse off. When did this divergence really begin? When you look back at the data, you know, when did it become clear that girls were starting to outpace boys on all these fronts? Well, in education in the 80s, it's actually quite remarkable how quickly, just in terms of four-year college degrees. So basically, the women had caught up with men by the late 80s on four-year degrees, a little bit later on master's degrees, and much more recently on postgraduate degrees. So if you show the lines, you can just see that there was this sort of, as you'd expect, just a little bit of a lag for different ones. But actually, most of the gains came in the last century. The gaps have remained pretty stubborn in higher education, but haven't risen very much in recent decades. Whereas I think the gaps in K-12, some of those have continued to rise. But you can really see this as having locked in in the last couple of decades of the last century and then the last 20 years, us coming to terms with it. Maybe hoping that in some ways the lines would start to converge again, and they're absolutely not. And it's also worth pointing out, this relates, Sean, to your earlier question about class and race, which is that all of the gender gaps we're talking about here are much wider at the bottom than they are at the top. Yeah. So in terms of college, for example, there's not that big a gender gap between upper middle class girls and upper middle class boys. I think because upper middle class parents compensate for the disadvantages that their boys face. But there's a huge gap among working class boys and girls. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. If you're rich, yeah, you're immune to a lot of societal dysfunction. And there is some evidence that actually the upper middle class parents do invest more time in their boys. Yeah. And I have heard people say, see, the patriarchy is still at work there. And that's not what I think is going on. I think that they're just realizing that the boys need more help in the current education, some more tutoring, more homework help, et cetera. And so they're just spending their resources on the kids who seem to need it most. It's just, it's wild to see this kind of pendulum flip, basically in the span of a single generation. You know, I mean, certainly we have lived in a world very much built by and for men. And those are the structural advantages we've been working to correct rightly for a long time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that fact and you know that recent history makes it harder to communicate just how dire the situation has become for lots of men and boys? I do. I think the speed of the change makes it incredibly difficult to update our views of the world, our priors. I've struggled with this. And I think that for a long time, the cause of gender equality was effectively synonymous with the cause of women and girls. Let's say for the last 10,000 years, just you know, pick one number. Yeah, long time. And a long time. And, and suddenly, in a few decades, that's no longer true. And on some measures now, it's flipped the other way around. Yeah. And we're supposed to update our view of the world. That's very difficult. That's like the needles on a compass. They used to point north, and now they point south. And you have to reorient your whole map of the world around the fact that north is now south. But the other second point I would make is we actually created lots of institutions in the service of gender equality on behalf of women and girls. So there is a national coalition for women and girls in education. There is an American Association for University Women, etc. There's a long list of organizations whose job it is to continue to focus on and continue to push for improvements of women and girls in, say, education. There are no equivalent institutions for boys and men. Now, those institutions were created 
when inequality was that way, but they're still there. And so there's an asymmetry in our institutional architecture, which means people are quite surprised when I share these stats with them. Because it's like, well, really? You know for sure that if it was the other way around, like the gender pay gap, for example, is a very well-known stat. Yeah. And we can perhaps get into some of the difficulties with that particular stat. But that's because there are dozens or hundreds of organizations whose job it is to make sure you know about that. And so we created an institutional architecture around gender inequality that was asymmetric and appropriately so in the 70s and 80s, but less appropriately so now. And, you know, those social changes were necessary. They needed to happen, but massive social changes always involve unintended consequences. And it seems a lot of people were left behind and need help. And the really frustrating thing for me is that this isn't zero sum, you know, it doesn't have to be. One of my colleagues said to me when I was trying to finish the book, he said, it's not like you're trying to find the center ground on this issue. You're trying to build the center ground and trying to land a plane. And that's an exaggeration, but there's some truth to it, which is that people are pretty dug in. And I think a key step forward here is to say, we can think two thoughts at once. Two things can be true at once. We can care about two groups. There is not a zero-sum game. In fact, I just got back from the UK, and the UK had a very interesting and substantive debate in Parliament to mark International Men's Day. And the thing that struck me most was when the Labour shadow minister, so in opposition for women and equalities, she listed many of the statistics that we talked about here, education, suicide. And she was interrupted, and someone said, what about violence against women? And she said, we're about to actually have a debate on violence against women, and we should continue to do everything in our power to reduce violence against women. Then she went on to say, but it's not a zero-sum game. Gender equality is not a zero-sum game, and we can continue to bear down on violence against women and help our boys and men. And I was like, hallelujah. This is a fantastic moment. And that's exactly the framing that we need to get to to make progress on this. If we ask people to abandon their concerns about or commitments to women and girls in order to embrace the growing problems of boys and men, then we're, we're done from the outset because we all want to continue to fight for women and girls. We're just increasingly concerned, many of us anyway, about boys and men as well. More of my conversation with Richard Reeves is coming up after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
whether you're coming from the left or the right, there's reasons to want to fix this. You know, if you're someone who's of the left, as I am, and you care about something like economic inequality, this is a huge concern. And if you're someone on the right, or at least what used to be the right, and you care about cultural disorder, this is also a massive concern. There are reasons to want to fix this, wherever you're coming from, ideologically. Yeah, not least because a huge contributor to economic inequality is the struggles of men. I mean, the work that Heather Boucher did, she's now on the Council of Economic Advisors, but when she was back at the Center for Equitable Growth, showed that all of the increase in middle-class family incomes, which was sluggish anyway, but all of it had come from increased women's earnings and employment. Men were actually a slight drag, if anything, on, on middle-income families' growth. So you don't need to persuade people perhaps outside of the elite, that helping men and helping boys to become more successful men will be good for everybody. That's just a blindingly obvious fact to everybody. And it's interesting, too, that boys raised in poor families are quite significantly more affected by that than girls are. It affects their educational outcomes. It affects their economic outcomes. So economic inequality and poverty actually have an even bigger effect on boys than on girls, which then creates this intergenerational effect too. Do we know why that is? Because that's somewhat strange to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. That is surprising. It's interesting. Again, it's one of these things that's well known among the seven people in social science that, that work <laughs> on this issue, but they're quite hard to get broader attention to. If you look at things like educational outcomes or even upward mobility, if you're born into poverty, if you're a woman, you're more likely to be upwardly mobile out of poverty than if you're a man. The work of Sean Reardon and his colleagues shows that educational outcomes for boys from poorer backgrounds are worse than for girls from poorer backgrounds. Obviously, poverty still matters. We don't really know why, but there's some speculation that boys are somewhat more psychologically vulnerable to disadvantage, whether that's neighborhood disadvantage, household disadvantage, family instability, etc. They're a little bit more fragile. And again, I think it's such a counterintuitive idea, so countercultural in some ways, but it looks to be true from the data. What There's really no debate among social scientists about the disproportionate impact of being raised poor on boys as opposed to girls. So back to where you were again, if you're on the left and you really want to improve outcomes for poor kids, then you've really got to be focusing on what's happening to the poorer boys. Yeah. And you've alluded to this being primarily a working class, middle class problem. And that's why the economic story here is pretty central, right? I mean, you talk about how things like globalization and free trade and automation that these have disproportionately damaged or undercut traditionally male-centric jobs. And that's a huge part of, of how we got here, right? Right. And it's important to distinguish that from a false view of this, which is it's because women are doing better in the labor market that men are doing worse. Yeah, not true. Again, that's a false choice, zero-sum. It's actually a lump of labor theory, if you want to get into the economic history of this. It's absolutely not true that women are displacing men in some way, or that there's any causal relationship between the two. But because the rise of women in the labor market has coincided with some of these economic shocks facing men, you can see why some people would draw that conclusion, although it's false. They say, oh, look, women are doing really well. Men are doing really badly. Well, B must be because of A, 
And that's what some conservatives play into, frankly. I think there's this kind of sense that, oh, it's because of feminism. It's because women are taking over because of the feminization of society, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's not serious. And so it's not true and it's unhelpful to this cause. Well, it's even more insidious, right? Because it just breeds more resentment right. without any eye towards actually improving anyone's material conditions. No solutions, just weaponizing it. What happens is that there are real problems facing many boys and men, especially working class and middle class boys and men. And if they're not attended to properly, this is, I guess, my main political argument, if responsible people and mainstream institutions don't tackle them, that does create a vacuum. And it does then allow irresponsible parties to weaponize those problems into grievances that can be quite powerful fuel for populist politics of one kind or another. But it's just, I know you had David French on a little while back talking about this kind of anger, particularly, I mean, a lot of conservative men. It's really being stoked by a lot of these people on the right. But I would also say that some of the fuel for that is being provided by the mainstream institutions and the left by failing to just simply acknowledge, hey, there are some real problems here. And I confess to finding it frustrating, for example, that the administration wouldn't say that the infrastructure bill would create jobs overwhelmingly for working class men. 70% of the jobs created by the infrastructure bill were working class men, disproportionately Hispanic working class men, actually. But the administration wouldn't say that. We only know that because a women's group did the analysis to criticize the infrastructure bill for saying that women would miss out on a historic investment. That just strikes me as leaving political capital on the table. And Health, public health organizations should just say very clearly, men are at much higher risk of suicide than women. They don't say that on the front page. And that just allows other people to say, look, they don't care about you. They don't even care about men. They hate men. They think men are toxic, et cetera, et cetera, fill in the blanks. And unfortunately, our failure to address this stuff head on, our, as a kind of catch-all for the sort of mainstream liberal institutions, if you like, absolutely makes that claim sound plausible. Well, one of the many results of this change in the economic realities is that, and this is a stat I think you bring up in the book, and I've heard you say it in interviews, that 40% of women now earn more than the typical man. 40% of breadwinners in the US are women. And as you said, that's a gigantic social change and one we should celebrate, but it also raises this question, right? Like, What does it mean to be a guy where that role of provider can no longer be presumed? Do we have a good answer to that at the moment? Do you Well, I can attempt an answer. I have been pushed to do so because I completely agree with the way you frame this, which is that there's this huge positive social change, arguably the biggest liberation in human history to achieve greater economic independence for women and the central goal of the post-war women's movement. But to suggest that doesn't raise questions about men, what does it mean to be men? This is what the conservatives were warning about in the 1970s. They were wrong in their predictions, by the way. They said that all these dislocated men would form marauding bands of like Mad Max style, they'd be violent gangs, right? That if men became economically unnecessary, they would become violent and dangerous. And with notable exceptions, that's not true. Violent crime has gone down quite significantly in the last few decades. And so those predictions were wrong. But I think this question, the existential question that you're asking here, which is like, well, okay, what does it mean to be a guy then, is not one that I think many people have even thought needs to be taken seriously. And in a lot of people in the women's movement, a lot of feminists will say, they'll say to me, it's not our job to solve this problem. And I agree with that. But then the question is, whose job is it then? Because someone is going to be writing the new script for masculinity in this new world. And If we don't take that seriously, then, as I said, you create a vacuum and other people will write a script, quite a toxic one, quite an angry one, quite a middle finger one, quite adolescent, actually. There's a sort of adolescent rage 
here that I recognize when I sort of seeing Trump and the way he acted and so on. It took me ages to realize who he reminded me of. And it was my 15-year-old son or my 15-year-old self. It's like, yeah, I know what that's like screw you dad middle finger to everything like blow up everything everything sucks you hate me everyone hates me i hate you it was very adolescent and so there is this celebration of adolescent masculinity that's taking place on the right and so i do think that having a more positive script for masculinity is important we could start by not talking about toxic masculinity i don't think that's particularly helpful or at least be much more precise what we mean by it yeah that's interesting you know <laughs> that phrase toxic masculinity you know it's it has been in vogue and, and I guess I've soured on it for a couple of reasons. You know, I mean, first and foremost, yes, there is an actual brand of masculinity that is incredibly toxic, always has been, always will be. That's not my issue. I guess for me, certainly in a conversation like this, again, with an eye towards trying to find a way to improve things, I want to resist pathologizing masculinity as such. Because for one, what it means to be masculine isn't fixed. It shouldn't be. It's always evolving. And the sort of masculine virtues we want to promote are going to change as society changes, as they should. And so that's something that gets lost. And it seems to me that we're stuck between this reflexive contempt for masculinity as such mm. and a regressive, truly toxic, grab them by the pussy masculinity. Right. And if those are our two choices, we're screwed. Yes. <laughs> we're not going anywhere good. And that's what I want to avoid. No, I don't think any of us want our sons to grow up in a world where those are the options. And actually, it doesn't help you with a teenage boy who's really drawn to Andrew Tate or whoever Andrew Tate's his internet, misogynist internet personality or whoever it is, because they don't feel like they, anyone else is listening to them. And so I agree with the way you frame this as this being a kind of false choice that's in front. And I've really soured on the term toxic masculinity as well, because no matter how hard you try, you really, you really can't escape the idea that you're somehow pathologizing masculinity itself. It takes on some of these kind of Puritan ideas of original sin. There's something kind of indelibly within you that probably can't be exorcised, even by a priest, and which is toxic. So you're carrying is a bit like original sin being carried generation to generation. You're carrying this kind of infection within you. And it just, just that's an incredibly unhelpful framing for boys and men, especially if they're struggling with lots of issues around sex or school. Or if the message is basically, well, if you'd just be less toxic, you'd be okay. Especially if what that basically boils down to, if you could be more like your sister, if you could be more like a woman, what we're basically saying is the acceptable form of masculinity is otherwise known as femininity. These are not helpful messages to anybody, certainly not to young men who are struggling and young men without much economic power. And so we've got to do a better job of answering the question. This makes me think of the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, for lack of a better word. <laughs> there was a segment of the population that disliked him in large part because he was appealing to so many young men, like very explicitly. But the fact that he was so appealing to so many young men we maybe should have been more curious about why that was. Right. That's the point. What vacuum it spoke to and how that could maybe be better channeled in other ways. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. Like to put it in economic terms, everybody was absolutely obsessed with the supply side of that equation rather than the demand side. It was all about what's he saying, what's wrong with him, et cetera. And so we thought, okay, he's getting this all this appeal. Let's attack what he says. And the guy thinks out loud over long rambling lectures. And he says a lot of ridiculous stuff, to be clear. Oh my God. A lot. I mean. Increasingly so, actually. Uh, yeah. 
But ignore that. I'm more interested in the fact that his book sold 5 million copies out of the gate, that when he tours, he has to use soccer or football stadiums to get the crowds in. I'm, I'm interested in the, what's the demand, because actually, like what he says is either weird or wrong or technocratic or sometimes right. He's a gigantic listening ear to millions of young men who don't feel heard. That's literally all he does. He shows compassion, he listens, he shows empathy, and he says, I get you, I hear you. That's all he does. And then a bunch of crazy shit, right, with lobsters and stuff. But the key thing is, like, why is there this oceanic demand for someone like Peterson? And it's because we are failing as a culture to address these very deep questions that have been raised by the extraordinarily positive changes of recent years about what it means to be a successful man today. In some ways, we've gone the wrong way. I think just as we needed to be articulating a really positive vision of masculinity, this is a difficult time to be a man. We're having to renegotiate. This is tough. Let's help. Instead, for understandable reasons, if anything, we've gone down the alley of kind of toxic masculinity, et cetera, or questioning the very idea that there is a masculinity. Just at the moment when I think we needed to be stepping forward towards this task, we've stepped away. Enter Jordan Peterson. I've always felt, and I felt increasingly so, that our society, and I'm speaking of America, that's where I live, that's what I know, that our society is failing parents much more than parents are failing their children. And I know there are probably lots of environmental factors that might disproportionately impact boys more for various reasons, like digital technology and video games. You know, they, they seem to present more problems for boys than girls. Where I come down on a lot of this is that, to me, the lack of community is at the core of so many of these problems. These are not individual failures. They're social failures. And if we can't see that, there's no chance of fixing anything. You know, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but you know, when I was a, a young boy, you know, the lack of a tribe, the lack of a non-family, non-parent adult male in my life was pretty devastating and not good for me, you know? And only in retrospect did I realize how much I needed that because I was so I was a problem kid and overreactive and had all kinds of behavioral issues and only later did I realize how much I needed that and what price I paid for the lack of it. You know, and I was a pretty middle-class kid growing up in Southern Mississippi. So certainly that's not an unusual story. No, well, thank you for sharing that. And I do think recognizing the importance of just how someone models how to be, right? The old saying is that people believe their eyes, not their ears. I think that's doubly true of kids. Right? You're at the beginning of the parenting journey. I'm more towards the end of it. But I can tell you that actually what you say to your kids about how to be in the world compared to how they see you being in the world is incomparable. Right? I think about my own upbringing and how I think my sense of how to be in the world, and including how to be a father actually, just came from just the daily watching of how this is how to be in the world, not from them sitting down and saying, here are the character virtues we're going to learn today, or like sticky things on our kids' schools that always have these virtue of the day things, right? Generosity or honesty and fine. But you know how kids learn to be generous and honest and committed and faithful is by watching you do all those things and saying, oh, okay, that's how you are in the world. And there are enough differences between men and women for it to be important to talk about male role models. And that's why I really resist it when people say, oh, you have to be careful talking about the importance of fathers. What about same-sex couples? Well, I got to tell you, the female same-sex couples I know with kids, and they're much more likely to have kids than male same-sex couples, much more, they are usually being very intentional about uncles, godfathers, etc., and making sure that there are those men in their kids' lives, right? So 
I see that as a very important data point, which is that they're not saying, how dare you say that my kids need a father? They might not say no to father, but actually, if you said, do they want positive male role models, all the lesbian couples I know are like, hell yeah. It's community. Everyone needs community. You know, we're talking about toxic masculinity. Well, yeah, you know, if you go online and peruse, you know, 4chan and, and Reddit, it is toxic as hell. You know, the, guys like Elliot Roger in incels shooting up street corners because they're mired in their own repressed, mangled self-esteem and whatever. I mean, that's a case study for a psychologist, you know? Yeah. That is deeply toxic and deeply dangerous. And the internet is just breeding ground for it. And it scares the hell out of me that my son may be online when he gets a little bit older and living and breathing and stewing in that filth. And I don't know how I could control that without a community for him to, you know. Well, first of all, you have to say when it does happen, because it will happen. And I actually now think it's become something of a rite of passage, particularly for boys raised in quite liberal households to go through a phase of... I mean, you've you got to hope it is Jordan Peterson because the conversation gets with your sons will get successively harder as they go deeper, you know, along that spectrum. But the first thing is we don't freak out. Well, like, that's interesting. So, you know, my kids were interested in Jordan Peterson. We bought the book. We discussed it. The 12 rules for life. I kept underlining the bit where it said, make your bed in the morning, keep your room tidy. That's no effect whatsoever. I'm sorry to say. And I kept talking about it and they grow out of it. I mean, my basic view is it's something about this that appeals particularly to boys or young men who are still figuring this stuff out. And then they kind of grow out of it. They start to see, yeah, there's some stuff about Peterson that's right, but mostly he's batshit crazy. They learn that. But they have to learn it in a way that doesn't immediately go, how dare you read that? That's toxic. You know, I'm not having Jordan Peterson in my house. How dare you watch that stuff on YouTube? You've got to lean into it and say, okay, that's interesting. Why are you interested in that? What positive messages are you getting out of that? And I also do think it's important to not conflate the problems that the broad swath of men we've been talking about having millions of men with the acting out of dangerous incels. I in, in no way, of course, want to minimize those. I think that should be taken for granted. And you can see this sort of trend, the Pied Piper of the algorithm can kind of pull you deeper into the darker bits of what's called the manosphere online. But again, violent crime rates have dropped. Yeah. The typical man today is much less violent than the typical man was even 30 years ago, even since 1990, violent crime rates have gone down. And i got to tell you, my experience at school, compared to my kids' experience at school, you know, the amount of physical danger that my boys have been in, the number of physical fights that my boys have been in, basically zero. That was not true for me. Now, I'm not saying the class situations were a little bit different, the backgrounds are different, but my God, the world was so much more violent when I was growing up than it is now. So that's an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, it's a gigantic cultural project, and who knows where to even start with that. But I mean, you know, you talk about the need to reinvent fatherhood, right. which is almost tantamount to reinventing or reassessing what it means to be a successful, purposeful man in this culture. Again, because of these economic realities, we're living in a world now where moms and dads both work. That is my house, right? That's, that's most houses now. That's yeah. most houses, right? Yeah. That's a good thing. But our society and our, and our labor market and our social institutions have not really adapted to a world like that. And I don't know if we have this idea of a good dad, a successful dad is the breadwinner who comes home and, you know, is a dinner on the table. Like <laughs> that shit has to go. It's over. It's dead. Yeah. That's the image people have in their heads. They're not going to meet it. They probably shouldn't anyway. But when they don't, if that's what they're holding on to, it's going to produce a lot of discontent and resentment. And that's just, that's bad for everyone. That's the problem. I think if so much male identity does go into that one narrowly described role, 
it's understandable that if you don't meet that role, you'll then see that you've failed. And interestingly, it's not just men who hold themselves. There are a lot of women too, especially among kind of in lower income communities. Catherine Eden's work is very good on this, where women will talk, lower income will talk about, I don't need another mouth to feed, right? They actually talk about men that way, literally an inversion of their kind of historic role. And so I do agree that kind of expanding this role of what it means to be a father. Meanwhile, of course, American fathers are just doing it. Massive increase in the amount of time that fathers spend with their children, huge increase in time post-divorce, a third of the time now is with fathers after divorce, almost no sole custody. So the divorce laws have really changed. Unmarried fathers, by the way, very differently treated by the legal system. That's a huge problem that we haven't updated our family law to meet the fact that most children to non-college educated parents are born outside marriage. So that is a huge problem. But this fatherhood issue gets so entwined with kind of marriage on the on the right and these kind of political difficulties on the left. And what I think we need to be saying is that fatherhood matters, period. Like, in fact, if you're not a breadwinner, it's probably even more important that you're an involved father because, first of all, that will allow mum to do more of the earnings, so you can do more of the caring, and because that probably means your family's lower income. And guess what? Boys in lower income families really struggle. So to the extent that you're not meeting the traditional model of what it means to, to be a successful, it's even more important that you meet the new role, which is more hands-on, more direct. So my model of fatherhood is one that's much more direct, about the direct relationship between the father and the kids, not one that's mediated through the mum. And that doesn't mean you can't be together. You can actually be in a marriage or in a relationship. But what you don't want to do is have a situation where the relationship between fathers and children remains conditional on the relationship between fathers and mothers. It has to exist separately and independently. And that's, of course, where a lot of social conservatives will take issue with the way I frame that because they will say, no, it has to be through marriage, etc. My view is that that ship sailed and we need a new model of fatherhood that's compatible with women's economic independence. We're going to take one last quick break, but we're coming back with more of my conversation with Richard Reeves right after this. This is probably a good segue to some of the things we can actually do policy-wise. And you have some good ideas here. I mean, one of them is equal leave. Pay leave. Family leave, paternity leave for dads. This is an example of the labor market not adapting to reflect right. the world where both parents work. I mean, I was, <laughs> yeah. you know, shout out to my employer, Vox. My wife worked for a company that did not offer much maternity leave. She was back to work in three weeks. Wow. And I had months. I had several months to be home and care for my son when he was an infant. And I took every day of it. And I stayed home and I cared for him and changed the diapers and heated up the bottles and all that. And it was incredibly satisfying. I felt incredibly fulfilled as a dad and a man for taking care of my son. And the idea that that is taken away from so many dads is a tragedy. Yeah, And it's bad for the kids. It's bad for the moms. It's bad for everyone. Yeah, I completely agree. An anecdote on this is that a friend of mine who's a really conservative, big Trump supporter, also stay-at-home dad, used to work in financial services. His wife was doing better. They took the decision that he should be at home for a while. And I remember him saying to me, he said, I keep a really good house. 
and I'm raising these kids really well. I know when their play dates are, I know when their dentist appointment is, so I got dinner on the table. And he just took such huge pride he should. in his competence as a dad. He's a very masculine guy, he's in the gym all the time. But there was no conflict in his mind between being a gym-going, Trump-supporting, stay-at-home dad. And I thought, hallelujah. Because that's exactly the kind of model that we need, which is like, you can be you and you can do it your own way. But I also agree with you that it's one of the reasons why I call for equal paid leave. And in a fit of optimistic fervor, I suggested six months for both mothers and fathers, which of course probably betrays my European background, that I even put that on the table in a country where there's no federal paid leave at all. But it is striking to me that we've had this massive family change. As you just said, like most couples now both work and very little change in the labor market. And while we're always being promised this idea of family-friendly employment, actually what I think most of what policy has been aimed at creating is employment-friendly families. Let's have breakfast clubs and after-school clubs so that your kids can be in schools for 12 hours while you work the standard workday that was designed for men with a wife at home. And so I find it extraordinary that our labor market has changed so little in the most recent decades and that there's been such a failure, collective failure, on the part of public policy to actually help parents, as you said, to be parents, and especially for fathers to be fathers as well as mothers to be mothers. It's a huge political failure. and. To the extent we're still clinging to models of masculinity that are incompatible with, say, that guy staying home as a dad and raising his kids, to the extent we're still holding on to models of masculinity that forbid that, that actually is toxic and it should be blasted off into space, never to be seen or recovered. Yeah. I mean, another idea you have, which, boy, (laughs) this is coming at the right time for me, and I really think you're onto something here. My wife and I were considering doing this before I even encountered this. But I feel better about it now. And that is this idea of starting boys in school a year later than girls. Do you want to say why you think that's a good idea? Yeah, it's because we decide to put kids into school at a certain age based on an assessment of their development at that age and what their development is going to be at later ages. And as we discussed earlier, there's a huge gap between boys and girls in terms of their developmental age. There's a big gap at five. There's an even bigger gap at 15. And so the relationship between chronological age and developmental age is not the same for boys and girls. So by starting boys in school a year later than girls, and there's a number of ways you could do that. You could start girls a year earlier, start boys a year later. You could hold them back at various points. But I like the idea of just by default, actually just putting the boys in a year later. And it's partly because it will help them at the beginning and mean that they're not behind all the way through, but more because 10 years later, when they're in high school and trying to turn in their chemistry homework, they're not surrounded by girls who just developmentally are at least a year or two ahead of them. And so I see it as leveling the playing field developmentally. And what's awfully revealing is that, as you point out, a lot of elites are already doing this. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, d- I did some reporting on this subsequently in a piece in The Atlantic. And a very prestigious East Coast private school, which people will, who in this world will have heard of, but I can't name, they did give me the data for their graduating seniors, and 30% of their graduating senior boys were old for their year. In other words, they shouldn't have been in that year, and it was about 6% of the girls. And it's kind of well known in elite circles that there are two cutoff dates, and especially for summer-born boys. Is your boy summer-born or? Yes, he's a summer baby. So he's born Father's Day, 2019. Oh, yeah. So he's born in June. Ah, one of my kids was born on Father's Day, too. We have that in common. Oh, it's fantastic. Isn't that a nice thing, by the yeah. way? It's sort of, it's, it's sort of a random, but not. It's kind of magical, even though it's sort of random. It made the day even more magical. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, I guess I'll just say this conversation is fraught with landmines and I, and I get that, but ultimately, however you feel about any of these issues, everyone has an interest in a society with fewer angry, disordered, rudderless men, men who are better, more present fathers, men who are not falling into nihilistic political movements, men who have a role to play and find meaning in it. You know, these are just categorically awesome social goods that benefit everyone and we should all want them. Yeah. And I would just add, you know, men who are healthier, living longer, not killing themselves. Of course, suicide rates have gone up and they are still between three and four times higher among men than among women, and especially white working class men who are at the highest risk of suicide, taking their own lives. And I looked at a study that Fiona Shand and her colleagues did, published in the BMJ, which I cite in the book, and they did a very nice study where they were able to find the last words that men had used to describe themselves before committing suicide. And the two most commonly used words were worthless and useless. And it seems to me that we have, do have a responsibility to create a society where everyone, including men who are struggling in many ways, feel that they have worth and to feel that we have use of them. And failing to provide that through our communities, through our institutions, including families, schools, etc., to send this message of worth and usefulness it shouldn't be surprising that we see so many men taking their own lives. They, they, they account for most opioid deaths, most deaths of despair generally. And so just as a kind of a leading indicator, so I think speaks to a broader challenge for us, which is to make sure that we're creating a society where we can all flourish. That was, to me, the animating goal of the women's movement at its best, which is to create a society where regardless of your gender, regardless of your sex, your background, you can flourish. And we just have a lot of men and boys now who are not flourishing and a lot of parents who are worried about them, people worried about their sons, their brothers, their husbands, their uncles. That's the challenge we face. And I'm really worried that unless we treat it this way, in a policy-oriented way, it will see some of these problems fester. And that won't be good for anybody, as you suggest. Again, this is a hard conversation, and I appreciate your willingness to have it with me. So again, the book is called Of Boys and Men. Richard Reeves, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for your thoughtful questions, Sean, as always. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. this was a pretty hard conversation. I had this conversation with an eye towards trying to focus on what might help, trying to focus on what's productive as opposed to digging in or looking for spaces of disagreement. In other words, what I tried to do here was meet Reeves where he is. Let us know what you think, as always. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.